0: Okay, we've been talking about hope now for the last several weeks. Uh, We're wrapping up that series on hope this morning, but um, as we do that, I want to remind you a little bit about where we've been and then sort of wrap it up with where I want to go with this today. We've been talking about this now for a while, and in this process, we have tried to define biblical hope. We've tried to help people to understand that there is a difference between wishful thinking, looking forward to something that you think might come, and actual biblical hope which is grounded in the person of Jesus Christ and therefore it's hope realized. We talked about that to a great extent. We've talked about the fact that our hope is in Christ. It's not just in the fact that Christ can do certain things for us. It is not just in the fact that God has made us certain promises that we believe are actually going to come true but that he himself is our hope. So that when we're thinking that maybe this will happen because I'm a follower of Jesus, maybe this will happen, maybe this prayer will get answered, maybe this uh, desire will be fulfilled, and that doesn't happen, we don't get confused into thinking that somehow we have put our hope in the wrong place. If you put your hope in ideas that you have about what God is going to do or might do, then you have put your hope in the wrong place. We need to be putting our hope in Jesus himself. In the person of Jesus. The reason that we can trust the promises of Jesus is because of the person of Jesus. Does that make sense? The reason that we know that when God makes promises that we can count on those promises is because God is a perfect God. He is holy. He is just. He cannot lie. He cannot be thwarted. He has all power. Whatever he sets his mind to, he will do and nothing can overcome that. So our hope is not in what he will do. Our hope is in him the person of Christ. Once we have our hope in Him, we have our hope in the right place, and we can begin to live a life of hope. And then last week, we began to talk about really the great uh, predator of our souls that, that would, would steal hope away, and we call that discouragement. And we talked about the impact of discouragement last week, and we said that, you know, the, the great attack on the hope-filled life is discouragement. That When people fall into discouragement, it is often the next step is something that they really wish they wouldn't have done. People give up when they become discouraged. People become despondent when they become discouraged. So discouragement is this attack upon hope. And a lot of times, even as Christians, as we're trying to put our hope in Christ, there is this situation that takes place where there are circumstances in our lives that are devastating and hurtful and disappointing and all of that kind of stuff. And those circumstances are allowed to rule us as if those circumstances were God. And when that happens, discouragement sets in and we begin to live according to the fear and the anxiety that comes with the circumstances rather than the hope that comes with Christ. So discouragement is this huge challenge that we face if we're trying to live a hope-filled life. And today, we're going to wrap up this discussion of hope by asking, what does it look like to live a life of hope? What does it actually look like when, when people are actually filled with the hope of Christ, when people are actually fully invested in the idea that Jesus is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do, what difference does it make in our lives? Because we started this whole series in 1 Peter 3.15 where we said that the scripture tells us to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give a defense for the hope that is within us. The implication being that when we have this kind of hope, our lives will be so different that when people see us, they will go, what is it about that guy? What is it about that family? What is it about that lady that is so different because everybody else seems to be driven and tossed by the wind, but they seem to be steadfast in their hope no matter what, and they will actually want to know why we are the way that we are. And we, we, you know, faced a, a difficult reality and sort of looking in the mirror and saying, when was the last time someone said to me, tell me about this hope that is within you? I'm watching the way you live your life, and I'm watching how steadfast you are in spite of the circumstances, and I want what you have. Tell me about that. The implication of 1 Peter is that if you are in Christ and your hope is there, that your life will be lived so differently because of that hope that people will notice it and they will want an answer they'll want to know why. And so that was challenging for us to realize that. So we have this this enemy, this attack upon life of hope called discouragement. And since discouragement seems to be the great threat to living a life of hope, I think it's fair to say that encouragement is one of the most important keys to overcoming that, that, to actually living the way we're talking about living. Now, when we talk about encouragement, it's really important for us to understand what we're talking about. Remember, to take the word encouragement, what is the root word of encouragement? Courage. When we're talking about encouraging one another in Christ, we are talking about infusing one another with the courage to walk with Christ. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about pats on the back. We're not talking about platitudes. We're certainly not talking about flattery here. We're not talking about coming alongside of one another as Christians and watching as people's lives are sort of falling apart and then just putting a hand on their shoulder and going, Oh, you're doing fine. Don't give, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. That's not encouragement. That drains us of courage. Encouragement is to enthusiasm use someone with the courage that it takes to live according to the hope that is within us. And so I'm going to dedicate this message to encouragement. This is all about encouragement. So if you feel like you've been beat up in the last couple weeks in this series, take a deep breath. I'm going to be nice to you today. This is about encouragement. It's about filling you with the courage to actually live this way. A few years ago, there was a wedding. And you know how it is with weddings. There's a a bridal party and there's a best man and a maid of honor and a bunch of girls that wear ugly dresses and a bunch of guys who put on a suit for the first time and they all come together and stand there. And then, the, but, the, but who, other than the bride, who's the best looking people at the wedding? Who is it that everybody goes aww when they see him? There's a, there's a flower girl and a ring bearer, right? And, you know, we've all seen little girls in their frilly dresses, and it's always pretty. But, man, there's something about a boy in a tuxedo, isn't there? A five-year-old boy in a tuxedo is just adorable, right? So there's this kid. He was chosen to be the ring bearer. He's five years old. And they try to explain to him, he'd never been to a wedding, he doesn't know what it is. They try to explain to him what his job will be, and they tell him, you're going to practice and practice, it's going to be great, you're going to do fine. And they try to explain to him what he's going to do, and so he's been practicing at home. And then it comes the night of the wedding rehearsal, right? And when, they, when they, it's time for him to walk down the aisle carrying the pillow, and there's people sort of on each side, and there's an aisle. Let me Just picture this aisle being in the middle, this is what this kid does. He comes in from the back... <laughs> And as he comes in, he's walking in with his pillow like this, and he gets right here, and he goes, Ah! He walks, and goes, Ah! Like that. Ah! And he keeps doing this, and the people are freaking out. And finally, his mother comes up to him, and she goes, Billy, what are you doing? And he said, I'm being the ring bear. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I never like to miss the opportunity to tell a story that might make you laugh but there's a reason I told you that story. It is possible to do something with all your might and still have it be the wrong thing, right? This kid was committed. (laughs) He had been practicing for weeks. He was going to do this better than anybody, but he didn't understand what it was he was really supposed to be doing. And so he was fully committed to doing something, but it turned out that that which he was fully committed to turned out to be the wrong thing thing. And how many times do we see that in our own lives and the lives of other people around us? It's not that they're lackadaisical. It's not that they're not trying. It's not that they're not serious. They may be chasing something with all of their might. They're thinking success is defined in a certain way, and they're going after that success with everything they've got. It's just that they have misdefined success. They're they're chasing some kind of fulfillment, and they're thinking, man, if I just have this finally, I'll be at peace in my heart, and they chase after it, and chase after it, and chase after it, making whatever compromises they feel they need to make along the way to get what they're chasing after that fulfillment, and when they finally get to that fruit that they've been trying to bite, they bite it, and it's a mouthful of gravel, and they realize that what they've been giving themselves to is actually... A counterfeit, success, fulfillment, a hope of being satisfied in some way, chasing a carrot. Our whole society does it. Hoping against hope that the carrot that they're chasing will result in satisfaction and some sense of well being and accomplishment and that everything's going to be okay. And yet it isn't. It's not that they're not trying, they're trying their hardest to live a life of a hope, but they've placed their hope in the wrong thing. They've defined success in the wrong way, and they keep coming up empty. Let's face it, when it comes to living a great life, the way the world defines it and the way God defines it are two very different things, aren't they? Two very, very different things. The world says, blessed are the powerful, and what does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That doesn't sound like the same thing. The world says, blessed are those who celebrate. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And we think, wow, maybe my definition of success is a little bit off here. The world says, blessed are the mighty, and Jesus says, blessed are the gentle. And as you go on through those beatitudes, all those blessed statements that Jesus makes, you scratch your head and go, that has nothing to do with the world that I've grown up in. This is not what the world thinks success is about. And yet Jesus says, it is what success is about. So many of us, even as Christians, are striving to do something great, striving to become someone great striving to achieve something great, striving to acquire something great. And the days of our lives just keep ticking away. We chase things that really don't matter, things that can never satisfy. I think that's why midlife crisis is so common in our society. That, that, That idea of a midlife crisis does not exist in most societies. Only affluent societies know midlife crisis. Because we have this idea of what I ought to be by a certain point, what I dreamed of being. Do you remember, maybe you're, maybe you're this age now and you'll relate to this, or maybe it's been a long time since you were this age, but you can remember this. Do you remember being 17, 18, 20 years old and thinking the whole life was ahead of you and the whole world is, was... Uh, your, your playground, and you had uh, n- endless opportunities, and you were going to do something great with your life, you were going to change the world with your life, and then you get into this sort of rut where it becomes about, uh, you know, going to work so you could get home, so you can watch TV, so you can go to bed, so you can get up, so you can go to work, so, and your whole life goes by you like that, and then you reach a certain age, and you go, this is not what I signed up for. That's what we see happening in our culture over and over again. We spend our lives chasing what can never satisfy, until we reach a point where we're deeply frustrated and discouragement sets in and we begin to lose our hope. We all long for greatness. We all long for significance, but over time, we tend to settle. We're not quite sure when it happened. We're not quite sure how it happened. But somewhere along the road, we have a tendency to settle for mediocrity and to say, well, maybe this life's enough. We we tend to compromise. We tend to choose the easy road. We we tend to choose the more comfortable path. We tend to choose the path that leads to immediate satisfaction rather than lifetime significance. And we end up discouraged and we end up depressed. Why is that? why is that so discouraging? I believe it's so discouraging because you were created for greatness. Created for greatness. When it came into the mind of God to create you, his picture of your life had nothing to do with mediocrity. It had nothing to do with settling. It had nothing to do with cruising. It had everything to do with a life that would be what the Bible calls abundant, a life that overflows, a life that makes a lasting, even an eternal impact, a life that is designed for eternity, not just for our temporary lives here on this earth. That's what God had in mind. And I'm not talking about the world's definition of greatness when I say that God created you for greatness, true greatness It's about loving God and serving God. It's about loving people and serving people with all of your heart. That's how the Bible defines it. So today, I want us to meet a man who, as his life went on, he refused to settle For that comfortable life. He refused to just sort of chill and relax and see what happened. He refused to say mediocrity was enough for him. He was actually on God's agenda and he wasn't gonna get knocked off of God's agenda. And he's probably a name that most of you have heard of if you've ever been in Sunday school or 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 read your Old Testament. But I'll bet you that most of us don't know much about him. You've heard his name, you know he's a Bible character, but you don't know much about him. His name is Caleb. And I want us to get introduced to Caleb today. Caleb was a man who was sort of a right-hand man to Moses during the time of the Exodus. Basically, there was Moses, and he had these two guys. uh, He had his brother Aaron, and he had these other two guys, Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb were with Moses. They were key leaders among the people, but they were young. Um, and, And we read about their stories together. Their lives happened concurrently in the... Old Testament and reading about Caleb's life, I have always been impressed with something. I've always been drawn to Caleb. I've always said, man, I want to be like this guy, but I've never quite been able to put my finger on what it was about Caleb that was so impressive to me, but I finally figured it out. Caleb lived a life of what I call godly courage. He lived a courageous life for God, and that catches my attention. That is something I want to be true in my life as well. His hope, Caleb's hope, was not in himself. His hope was in God. And so he wasn't easily knocked off track. He didn't go after his own dreams and his own ideas and his own wishes. He tried his best to stay on track with God and pursue the things that God said were important. And one of the key marks of this godly courage that we see in Caleb and we also see in every other person who exhibits godly courage is humility. Godly courage and humility always go hand in hand. The most courageous people in a godly sense are also the most humble people. Now, I told you Caleb and Joshua are sort of right hand men to Moses, and yet of the two, Caleb is the senior guy. Caleb is older than Joshua, which in a Jewish culture right there is enough. As the older man, he is the one who is respected. He is always the one who, with the two of them together, would be in charge. He is the one who is looked up to. And so Caleb is older than Joshua. Caleb is also from a far more significant tribe than Joshua. Caleb also has experienced that Joshua lacks. Um, and he was the spokesman. You, we meet Caleb, and you, we're going to see this in the scripture in a moment. We meet Caleb uh, when... The 12 spies are sent into the promised land that first time. When they get there, after after crossing through the wilderness, they get to where the promised land is, and they're camped on the other side of the Jordan River. And Moses says, I'm going to take one man from each tribe, and we're going to send you in as spies. We want you to just go in and see what the land is like. And these two, Joshua and Caleb, were chosen as a part of those 12 men. And when they come back, Caleb is the spokesperson for the whole group. And so Caleb is clearly um, a senior guy. He's clearly the respected guy in the group, okay? Joshua is sort of his younger protege. He was the obvious choice, Caleb, to become the leader when Moses died. But strangely enough, God didn't choose him. God chose Joshua, the younger brother type. And what did Caleb do? When God chooses Joshua to step up and be the leader of Israel, what does Caleb do? As the one who really was next in line for the job, as the one who had the better resume, as the one who had the more experience, as the one who any PR person would have hired above Joshua, he should have had this position of leadership and respect. And when it's given to Joshua, what does he do? When it's given to Joshua, he does exactly what he did when it was given to Moses. He says to himself, I am a servant of God, and therefore I will serve the man that God calls me to follow. And he becomes a servant to Joshua. So Caleb humbly serves Joshua just as he had humbly served Moses. Why? Because he understood that he was humbly serving God either way. And that's the point. So a person of godly courage doesn't need to promote himself. People who have this kind of courage, they know the secret. The secret is, it's not about me anyway. It's all about God. And when that is true for your life, it sets you free from all these struggles and all this sort of internal pressure that you feel and put on yourself because it's not about you and your agenda, it's about God and his agenda, and you are blessed to be a part of it. And that seems to be how Caleb looked at it. Now, we may have reached the point in the sermon where you're already starting to doze off, so nudge the person next to you. So I'm about to say something that you need to hear. Nothing keeps us from living the abundant life more than plain old-fashioned pride. Nothing. It's the number one culprit that steals away what God has planned for us, this abundant life that Jesus died to give us. And it's so strange because in the world in which we were raised, we were taught that pride is a good thing. And yet God says, no, 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 there is a, there is a, there's a, there's a confidence you can have as a follower of God. That's a good thing. There, there is a Um, a courage that you can have as a follower of God that is a good thing. There is a hope that you can have as a follower of God that is a good thing. But pride is the thing that always comes between you and God. Because by simplest definition, pride is simply this. Pride is saying to God, at least in this moment, I will be God in my own life. That's pride. Pride is the problem, always the problem. I believe that pride is at the root of every single sin any of us have ever committed. It's what sin is defined as. Think about this. Adam and Eve, they're doing just fine in the garden. Nobody has ever sinned. They're walking with God. They have this great relationship with God, this great relationship with one another. And then the serpent comes along and begins to tell his lies. And basically, if we sum up what the lie was, it wasn't about fruit, you guys. It was about Godship. The lie was, God is trying to keep you under his thumb. You don't have to obey him. You can do your own thing and be your own God. He said to them, you can become like God. Just do your own thing. Lift yourself up. Make it about you. And by the way, what sin took place before that that we know of in the Bible? Lucifer, he was cast out of heaven. Why was he cast out of heaven? Because the scripture says, he said, I will make myself like the Most High. I will lift myself up to the level of God. And God said, that ain't happening. Pride. It's insidious. Adam and Eve. And then the next one that's recorded in the scripture is Cain killing his brother Abel. What was that about? About pride? They both make an offering, and for whatever reason, God says, I like uh, Abel's offering more than I like Cain's offering. And Cain becomes jealous because in his mind, it was about him. And he wants to be the one that is seen as better. And so what does he do? He kills his brother. And you just go on through the scripture, you go on through the history of man, and you don't really need to open a history book. Just look in the mirror and remember your own life. And ask yourself, what sin has there been in my life that wasn't about me taking charge, me being my own king? Humility is essential to the life of hope. Pride gets in the way. A person with godly courage puts his hope in God. A person who puts his hope in himself will always be disappointed. A person who puts his hope in God will never be disappointed. And that's what biblical hope is all about. Seeing circumstances through the eyes of hope in God. The armies of Israel looked at Goliath and they saw a warrior who was too big to defeat. Along comes David and he sees a target that is too big to miss. Right? There's a big difference there. One of them is thinking about their own strength, their own power and what they can do. The other one has got his hope firmly planted in God and he is standing up for God's reputation. And he says, you will not mock the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he walks out and is apparently without fear, accomplishes this great thing that mighty warriors could not do. Humble people. Remember that this is still God's world, and God is still in control. And when you see it through the eyes of hope, it changes everything that you see. It's like putting on glasses for the first time. You know, one of my children had um, vision problems as a child, and we had no idea. We homeschooled um, when they were little, and so our classroom was the size of a little bedroom, right? And so they could see everything on the board and all that kind of stuff. By the time she got to school, she looked at the board and she couldn't see it. And she had no idea she had vision problems until that day. And then when she realized that, we took her to the doctor, and she put on glasses. She was like, wow, this is what the world looks like. It's astonishing when you have the right glasses on, and you see God for who he is, and your hope is in him and not in yourself. It changes your perception of everything. One of my favorite um, stories really... One of my favorite books, there's a book called The Hiding Place. Maybe you've read it or heard about it. It's a story, really, of the um, Nazi invasion of Europe and during World War II and, um, and the you know, the taking of Jews and putting them in concentration camps. And uh, there was this family, uh, the Ten Boom family, and they had these two daughters, uh, Corey and Betsy. And um, what they decided to do was to take in... Jewish people into their house and hide them. And, be, and they were not Jews, they were Christians. But their understanding of God's will was that we cannot let these people be led off to slaughter. And so they put themselves at great risk. And once they were found out, their family was taken and they too were put in the concentration camps. And Corey and Betsy Ten Boom were led off to one of the worst places on the face of the earth, a concentration camp called Ravensbrook. And they went into Ravensbrook, and they encountered various horrors, the likes of which you have read about in your history books. And they went through what any of us would call something very, very close to hell. And they thought when it couldn't get any worse, they received news that they were being transferred to a different barracks. And they were sent to this other barracks that was all the way in the back. And when they got to this barracks, they walked into a room that was about the size of the center section here. And there was something like 150 women living in that space. The other thing was that it was so infested with lice that you were literally covered head to toe with lice all the time. And when they got there, Corey finally broke and she cried and she said, We should not be here. We're not even Jews. We haven't done anything to deserve this. We, we trusted our God and we helped these people and this is the result. And now when we thought it couldn't get any worse, it has now gotten worse and I don't think I could stand this anymore. She, she began to break in her spirit, but her sister Betsy put her arm around her and said, Corey, you're missing the point. See, since they've moved us back to this section where there's so many rats and so much lice, even the guards don't come back here. And that means that we can teach the Bible to these women and share the gospel with them without fear of reprisal. And they led hundreds of women to Christ at Ravensbrook before those women were led off to the gas chambers and the ovens. It's all a matter of perspective. Now, I'm not saying that that concentration camp was a good thing. I'm not saying it was a good place to be. I am saying, though, that when you are in even the worst of places, if you have the eyes of hope in God, it changes everything and you see what cannot be seen apart from the eyes of hope. And that's the kind of person God can use to change the world. What are you seeing as you look at your circumstances today? Are you seeing your life through the eyes of hope? you see seen your life through the lens of godly courage? If you do, God can use you to change the world. Mediocrity is not on the agenda for your life. What are you seeing? When you go through this nightmare as parents, and you have a rebellious teen, and you don't know where she is, and you don't know when she's coming home, and you don't know what she's doing, and she will not come under your authority, and she's out there in danger, and there's nothing you could do, and it's three in the morning, and she's still not home, and you don't know where she is, and you're lying in bed crying at night. Do you see any hope in that? What do you do when you... When you just go through another anniversary with that same unloving spouse that you have felt tethered to for the last several years without any warmth or any affection, and you feel like I'm just not getting anything out of this, how can I go on with this? As you look at a situation like that, can you possibly see hope? As you go off to school one more time and you meet that same bully who embarrasses you in front of the other students every day and you feel like you're about this tall every time you set foot on campus and mom and dad say, you have to keep going back, you have to keep going back, what kind of hope do you have in those circumstances? I'm not saying those are good things. I'm saying that those are opportunities for God to show himself strong. To a person who has godly courage. God promises to never leave you or forsake you. He is our hope. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Numbers. Old Testament, early in your Bible. Turn to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 of Numbers 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, "'Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel.' Okay, do you hear the promise? This is a promise has been made over and over and over again, all the way back to Abraham. I'm giving this land to the sons of Israel, and you've seen the plagues, and you've seen the Passover, and you've seen the parting of the Red Sea, and you've seen the manna and the meat in the wilderness. You've heard the voice of God. You have seen me in the fire and in the cloud. And so what I'm saying is I'm about to make this come to fruition. You're about to walk into the promised land. So send these men... He says, you shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. Now skip down to verse uh, 25. These guys have gone into the land and now they come back. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus... They told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living in the, uh, by the sea, by the side of the Jordan. These are all great warrior peoples. Verse 30, then Caleb <clears throat> quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out. The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also, we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, which are giants like Goliath. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. The 12 tribes went into the promised land Ten of them saw an obstacle too great to overcome, and two of them saw a gift so great from a God who can overcome anything. Joshua and Caleb saw an opportunity for God to show himself strong, which he finally did, by the way, 40 years later. After all of these people who were so scared of the circumstances in front of them refused to take the step that God called them to take and they went back to the wilderness where they wandered around for 40 years until every one of their generation died except for Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses passed before they got into the promised land. And then finally they came back to the promised land. And when they finally did enter the promised land, Only Joshua and Caleb were alive to see it out of that generation. Why were these guys so brave? Where did they get this kind of courage? Was it because they had supreme confidence in themselves? No, just the opposite. It was because they had supreme confidence in their God. Everyone saw a battle that they couldn't win, but they saw a battle that had already been won because the promises of God cannot be thwarted because of who God is. And that's why we put our hope in Christ. When the children of Israel finally did enter the promised land, they still had to fight to possess it. There were still battle after battle after battle as they went from one city to the next in the promised land, taking it over. And then I want you to turn to the book of Joshua. It's just a couple more books um, and to the right. And go to Joshua chapter 14. Joshua chapter 14, they've been now for several years Um, going about the process of taking this land, and each tribe is being given a certain area of land, and um, they're continuing through the land. Let's pick it up in Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, "'Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully.'" Now, behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am 85 years old today. Let's just stop there for a second. All old jokes aside, let me just ask you this. When a person reaches the age of 85, is that the point in life that we think, hey, maybe now is the time for them to really get going? Is that how we look at it? No, if a person gets to be 85, we're just saying, you know what? Hey, relax. Let's let's not dream any more dreams. Let's not start a new business, right? Let's not go build a house. We're 85. It's time to rest. Turn on the TV. Put your feet up. That's it, okay? He's 85 years old. And by the way, these are not the days when people live to be 900. This guy's 85. He's an old man. And he's been waiting for 45 years for this to be fulfilled. Verse 11, he says, I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. My dad's 84, and he says the same thing. <clears throat> I'm not sure it's true. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day the Anakin were them were there with great fortified cities perhaps the lord will be with me and i will drive them out as the lord has spoken so joshua blessed him and gave hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunah for an inheritance therefore hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunah the Kenizzite until this day because he followed the lord god of israel fully the hill country Caleb says give me the hill country I realize that we've already given some of this flat land. You know, when we went to Jericho, remember that? We walked around, the walls fell down, everybody ran. We just walked in and we just moved in. We'll give that to some of these young guys that think they're so strong. I'm 85. You give me the hill country. What's the hill country? The hill country is the high ground. That's the place where the forts are built. That's the place where the warriors are. These, These giants that they saw when they were in the land, they live in the hill country. There are fortified cities in the hill country. There's great weaponry in the hill country. And the reason you build those forts on the top of the hill is because it is really hard to climb the hill and attack, right? It is much easier to shoot people from above than it is to climb up and attack. And so what is he saying? I am going to lead a charge on this city. I will lead the way. I will go up the hill and I will take this hill country. Am I afraid I'm going to get shot? Absolutely not because God promised me. This land would be mine, and I am not willing to live a life that is anything less than God's promise fulfilled. It wasn't about him. It was about his God. And he said, give me the hill country. He was 85, but his hope wasn't in himself. Listen, I am convinced that God has some hill country for you. I am convinced whatever your age, whatever your stage of life, whatever your situation, that God has some stuff that is still ahead for you. There are some ways that God intends for you to glorify him. There are some ways he intends to show himself strong in your life. You go, now my best days are behind me and let's leave that to the young people. Forget that baloney. As long as you are breathing, God intends, you to, intends to use you to change the world. It is not enough to just settle I don't care how old you are. I don't care how tired you are. I don't care how long you've been at this. I'm telling you, you need to renew hope because your hope is in God. And he is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or even think. Too many of us shrink back in fear and we don't move ahead. We're no longer willing to dream crazy dreams for God. We're no willing no longer willing to go out on a limb for God because we've sorta of settled in and gotten comfortable. And what's worse is that when someone does dream a crazy dream for God, when someone says, you know what, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna just take up stakes, and I'm going to move to the Amazon. I'm going to reach unreached people. And they have those kind of crazy dreams for God. They're going to pursue God with all their heart. They're going to live radically different than everybody else. You know what we say to them generally in the church today? We go, calm down. You know, we, we have to live a balanced life. There's no sense getting all crazy here. We often throw a wet blanket on people who dare to live on the front lines for Jesus. Guys, we need to infuse one another with the courage to walk in hope instead of taking away one another's courage by saying, why don't you just settle for this kind of life? Isn't it time that we as a people of God made it a point to encourage greatness in one another rather than trying to protect ourselves and each other by throwing a wet blanket every time we see godly courage and hope pop up in someone's life? If we are going to live according to that hope, we need to encourage one another. That's why he put us together. I want the whole country. I'm not willing to live with less than God has for my life. I'm not talking about possessions and wealth and fame and all. I'm talking about... God's name being lifted up and people seeing that through me. I'm talking about having such a hope in my life that when people see me, they go, what is about that guy? He is weird in a good way. I want people to wonder about the hope that is within me. God created you for greatness, for greatness. He created you for a life of hope. Now, get out there and live like it. It's not. I'm not going to stand here and say, come on, you can do it. Because we know better, don't we? I'll tell you the flat-up, straight-out truth. Change the world? You can't do it. God can do it through you. Get your eyes on Him. Get your hope fixed on Him. Just remember, it's not about you. It's all about Him.